Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you this morning to join me in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I want to say that Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, is one of the minor prophets. Now, these fellows are called minor prophets, not because their prophecies are any less important than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, but because their prophecies are shorter than the prophecies of the major prophets. So when we think of the prophets in the Bible, we divide them into these two categories, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, Hosea, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Malachi, and Habakkuk. These are minor prophets. Habakkuk chapter 1, let's speak on the subject, perplexed by the problem of evil. And I'll read verses 2 through 4 in Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry, asks Habakkuk, and thou wilt not hear, even cry unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention, Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Have you ever looked at events in the world and wondered, what is God doing? Are you perplexed as you try to reconcile what the Bible teaches about the character of God with the rampant wickedness and evil that exists in our sick society? Do you struggle to make sense of the almighty power and the goodness of God in the face of the apparent triumph of evil in the world around you? Then you need to meet the prophet Habakkuk. His little four-chapter prophecy has much to say to people who are perplexed about the problem of evil and who feel that God is not hearing their prayers or intervening to remedy the situation. Let's ask a few questions this morning. First, who was Habakkuk? And the answer to that question is we really don't know. Like so many of these other prophets, there's not a lot of personal information given about them. We're not told where he was born or who his family was. We do know that he was a Jewish prophet. Unlike the priestly and the kingly offices in the economy of Israel, the office of prophet, you know, was not restricted to just one tribe. You know, the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi, the kings had to come from the tribe of Judah, but prophets could be chosen and called by God out of any of the tribes. So we do know that he was a Jewish prophet that God raised up, but interestingly, like preachers today, it didn't matter who he was personally as much as the message that he proclaimed. I saw a list this week somebody made of the things that they admire in a pastor, and one of the things that they admire is that when their work is done, they ride off into the sunset without any concern for their legacy. Yes, indeed, that's what it means to be a true servant of God is we're not trying to make a personal name for ourselves and you'll notice that's one of the things that is popular in this world. Everybody wants to be remembered. People want their names to live in history. You know, even though they're dead, they want people to still be talking about them. But the interesting thing about so many of these prophets, and even some of the New Testament preachers, you know, Ananias, in the book of Acts, you never read about him before Acts chapter 9, nor after Acts chapter 9. God used him to preach to the Apostle Paul to Saul of Tarsus, and to take the scales from his eyes. But Ananias was not what you would call a celebrity in the ministry. And Habakkuk was just a regular prophet of God. You know, Amos was a fig picker and a sheep herder. That is, he harvested figs from fig trees. That was his job. He probably was a farmer and a rancher, basically, but God called him to be a prophet. 
And interestingly, God can reach down and pick up anybody from whatever station of life and can put his call upon their lives and commission them to go and proclaim his word. And that's really my story, dear friends. I'm a preacher not because I chose this as a career path, but because I believe that in my young life, God called me and I had a burden. I would never encourage anybody to take this responsibility upon themselves unless they feel that God has called them. And if God has called you, it will be manifest. God will use you to the edification of his people and the church will recognize that call. And that's why we set men aside for ordination after they've proven themselves to have a gift to preach. So Habakkuk is just a regular Jewish man that God called to be a prophet. We do know that he lived about 600 years before Christ. He was a contemporary of Daniel, who lived at about the same time. You remember Daniel, who was taken to Babylon? And he was also a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet, who lived at the same time. And the nation of Judah, during the days that Habakkuk lived, was morally and spiritually deteriorating. It was a nation in decline. In fact, just a year or two after Habakkuk's prophecy closes, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to make the first of three incursions into Judah to take the children of Israel into captivity in Babylon. We do know that Jehoiakim was the king during both Jeremiah and Habakkuk's prophetic career. And there's an interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 17, about Jehoiakim's tenure upon the throne. This passage is basically a summary of this man named Jehoiakim. Would you listen to it? God says about him, your eyes and your heart are covetous. In fact, he says, thine eyes and thine heart are not, but for thy covetousness. And the way that's worded simply means that the only thing you think about and you look for is something that will improve your personal status. You're covetous. Thine eyes and thy heart are not except for thy covetousness. And for to shed innocent blood. Notice this guy, Jehoiakim, was a profligate and ruthless king. And for oppression and for violence to do it. And God says about Jehoiakim, he shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That is, just like the carcass of a dead animal is thrown out into the field and it's not even buried, God says Jehoiakim would be buried like that. And he says, when he dies, don't lament for him. Now, that's what God thought of Jehoiakim. And you know, when the ruler is evil, it has a trickle-down effect on society, doesn't it? When leaders err, it influences the people beneath them. The book of Proverbs tells us that when the righteous bear rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people mourn. So Habakkuk lived in a day in which the nation was in moral freefall. In fact, the economy had basically failed. And there was tremendous immorality on the streets of Judah. There was the exploitation of the poor. The weak were forgotten. Life was considered to be very cheap. The morals of the nation had sunk to an all-time low during Habakkuk's tenure as prophet. We do know one thing about Habakkuk, not only that he was a Jewish prophet who lived in a very profligate and immoral time, but we know that his name means the wrestler or the embracer. And in this book, we are going to see Habakkuk wrestling with and grappling with the problem of evil. The question that he is asking is how can a good God tolerate sin and evil in this world? Now I think it's very commendable that Habakkuk is sensitive to sin because so many people are not. You know there's a tendency when you are exposed to sin to lose sensitivity to it like a man working on the back of the garbage truck. The first day on the job, the odor is unbearable. And he doesn't think he can take it. But after about two weeks, he doesn't even notice it anymore. 
He's been desensitized. And you know that can happen to us. I think that's one reason movie makers continue to get more extreme. You remember when the expletive was used in Gone with the Wind, how shocked the American public was? Just one bad word spoken by Rhett Butler. But you know, today, my friends, that's considered very mild, isn't it? In fact, it doesn't even bother most of us. And it's hard to find a movie anymore without the worst of curse words, the foulest of expletives. What about the violence that you see in modern movies? Well, I'll tell you, my friends, the more blood and guts and gore, the better as far as modern movie makers are concerned. Indeed, it's hard to keep your sensitivity. But you know, Habakkuk is troubled by the fact that he sees the nation declining around him. Listen to him again. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? Lord, why do you allow me to see every day the twistedness and perversion of popular culture and cause me to behold grievance, that is, the suffering that it causes in the lives of people. Habakkuk was sensitive to this. He mourned over sin. I want to ask you today, dear friends, can you still mourn over sin? You know, when it comes to the problem of evil, there are basically two unbiblical reactions to evil. First of all, many people say, well, how does this square with the existence of a good God by adopting atheism? You may remember Rabbi Kushner wrote a book some years back entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And you know, the answer to Rabbi Kushner's book is really very simple. They don't. (laughs) Bad things don't happen to good people because, my friends, there is no such thing as good people. You know, if you understand what the Bible says about humanity apart from God's grace, you understand every man deserves eternal punishment in hell. Now, I know that's not popular. It's hard to swallow by the VIP generation in which we live, but it's what the Bible teaches that man at his best state is altogether vanity. So the simple answer to Rabbi Kushner's book is they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. The real question is why do good things happen to sinful people? (laughs) That's the real mystery. But I understand what he's saying. He's grappling with the problem of evil. How can a good God allow this world to be in the shape that it's in? And there are so many atheists who say, I don't believe in God today because there's so much pain and suffering in this world. If God really did exist, then people wouldn't have the problems that they do. It's probably the chief argument the militant atheist makes against Christianity in the modern world, the problem of evil. And you know, Rabbi Kushner's answer was, How can God be both sovereign and good at the same time? How could he both be loving and kind and then all-powerful? And his basic summary in that book was that bad things happen to good people because God really wants to do better, but he's just not able to control all of the circumstance. He is good and loving, but he's not all-powerful. That was his basic answer. Well, I'll tell you, that doesn't meet the biblical test, does it? Somebody else says, well, he could do something about it, but he won't. He's sovereign, but he's not good and loving. I'm telling you, the Bible teaches God is both all-powerful and he is a God of goodness and kindness and moral rectitude and uprightness. You say, then why is there such evil and pain and suffering in the world around us? That's the thing Habakkuk is wrestling with. He's wrestling with the problem of evil. So one of the unbiblical reactions to this question, how can evil coexist? with a good God in the world, is people say, well, there must not be a God. It's all random. I'm an atheist. And that's becoming an increasingly popular view in our secular society. The second response that's unbiblical is people adopt an attitude of apathy. The first group says, we'll be atheists. The second group says, stop caring because it hurts too much. I'm not going to embrace atheism, but I'm just going to stop trying, stop caring. In fact, there is really no good and evil. It's all relative. And I hope you wouldn't expect that philosophy from your medical doctor. If you went in for surgery, maybe you're going to have heart surgery. Would you like a doctor that says there is no absolute truth? 
he might assume that your gallbladder is your heart, <laughs> you know. You say, well, you think one organ is your heart, but I think another, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. It's all relative. My friends, I'll tell you, that philosophy won't work in any area of life. It won't work in the medical field. It won't work in the business community. It won't work on the highway. You say, well, to me, the red light means go and the green light means stop. Well, it's not going to be long before you're going to have an accident. You see, there is such a thing as truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil. There is such a thing as absolute truth. Everything is not a matter of debate. Everything is not in question. God is, and he gives his law, his word. And my friends, if you want to be happy in life, the best way to do so is to comply with his law. And if you want to rebel and fight against him, then I dare say you're in for the fight of your life because he's never lost a battle. But you see, many people are struggling with this, and the idea that the best way to deal with evil is just to quit caring so much is an unbiblical response. But I want you to notice how Habakkuk mourns over sin. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn. One of the characteristics of his true followers is that they are sensitive to sin. It hurts them. It hurts them in their own hearts and lives. They grieve over it. Have you ever known that experience? Have you ever looked in the mirror and just shaken your head and thought, I should be a better person. Why do I struggle with the attitudes and the thoughts and the selfishness that I have? You say, well, I just try to excuse it or blame it on somebody else. No, my friends, that's an unbiblical reaction. We ought to grieve over it. And Jesus said his true followers are people who mourn over their sins. And I think Habakkuk knew what it was to be sensitive. He had a sensitive conscience. It hurt him to see God's name blasphemed. It hurt him to see God's people living in such disobedience to the law of God. It hurt him to see the cause of God in truth so maligned. And it hurt him to see the sin in his own heart as well. Do you know what it is, my friends, to grieve over sin? So what do we know about Habakkuk? We know that his name means the wrestler. What's he wrestling with? Who's his opponent? <laughs> Himself. He's wrestling with his own inner turmoil, trying to make sense of what is happening in the world with the fact that God is righteous and that God is good. You know, I think that this message from the book of Habakkuk is increasingly relevant in the world in which you and I live. Do you know anything as you look at the headlines of this grief that comes to the child of grace as he sees the condition of the world? Or what about the church? Do you, my friends, mourn over the cause of Christ, over Zion? The hymn writer put it like this, Oh, may I worthy prove to see thy saints in full prosperity, to see the bride, the glittering bride, close seated by her Savior's side. I think of Nehemiah sometimes when he heard the news that the gates of Jerusalem were still in a state of disrepair and that the walls had been burned with fire and nothing had been done, even though the exiles had returned, nothing had been done to rebuild the city. Nehemiah was hundreds of miles away in the Persian capital. He had a very important job. He was an advisor to King Ahasuerus. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was a very important and reputable Jew living abroad. But when he heard the news that back home, that nothing had been done to repair the city of God after the Babylonian captivity after the children of Israel had been gone for so long, and now some have returned, but they haven't accomplished anything in reconstruction of the city. Nehemiah said, when I heard this, I mourned and wept and fasted certain days. My beloved, do you care enough about the cause of God and truth to weep over it? David said in the Psalms, mine eyes run down with tears because they keep not thy law. When David saw the dishonor that is done to God in popular culture and society, he said, it causes me to grieve. 
Jeremiah said, mine eyes run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. And here's the question that I ask you today, my friend. Are you sensitive to sin in your own heart and life? Enough to weep and to mourn over it. And in the world around you, does it hurt you to see what's happening to our nation? Does it hurt you to see how the name of Christ has been expelled from the school system? And how even the public square says that you can't use the name of God, that religion is a taboo subject in public discourse. It ought to cause us to grieve. And we need to be like Habakkuk, sensitive enough to say, how long, O Lord? It should make us cry out. That's my point. So we don't know a lot about him, but we do know that he mourned and was sensitive to sin. And I love the words of Jesus when he said, blessed are they that mourn. As one of the identifying qualities in his true followers, he says, for they shall be comforted. I'm telling you, there's comfort for the mourner. If you're truly concerned about the condition of your life, your family, your church, your nation, Jesus takes notice of that and promises comfort for those who are contrite and of a sorrowful spirit over sin. But Habakkuk is wrestling with his own heart and mind over this naughty problem. You know, Jeremiah also wrestled over this. He's called the weeping prophet. You say, why did that preacher cry so much? Because, my beloved, he said, none come to the solemn feasts. The book of Lamentations, you know what that name, Lamentations, means? The root of the word is lament, to cry, to weep. He's lamenting as he walks in the smoking ruin that was the city of Jerusalem, and he sees the temple, Solomon's beautiful temple, that is now a heap of rubbish. Jeremiah just breaks down in weeping, and the Lord's people have been carried away as slaves to Babylon, and they'll be there for 70 years, and here's the old prophet who mourns over the plight of the nation. So what we have in the book of Habakkuk, may I say, is not so much a prophecy as it is a personal experience. And we might say that the theme of this book is one man's crisis of faith and his journey to faith. Now, this book starts in the lowlands, but I'll tell you by the time it ends, Habakkuk's on the mountaintop. It begins with a question mark. How long, O Lord? And it ends with an exclamation point. This is the story of one man's journey to faith. Now, he's a prophet of God, but you see, he has a crisis of faith. And by the way, even after the Lord's given you faith and taught you the truth, did you know because of the circumstances of life, you and I may have a crisis of faith from time to time. Have you ever had that? Maybe you've had some uh, family difficulties. Maybe you've had some financial problems. Maybe you've been fired from your job and you're struggling now in unemployment, looking for a new job, but it just seems that no one wants to hire you. Perhaps you've experienced a deep disappointment. Perhaps you've been betrayed by someone who had promised to be faithful and to be true to you forever. Perhaps you're facing a health crisis and you've heard from the doctor that you have some dread disease. And even though you sort of expected the diagnosis, yet it was like a punch in the gut when you heard it. And it's just sent you reeling and you say, Lord, where are you? Why don't you do something? Are you even listening? Are you hearing my prayers? I'm telling you, this book is so practical. Lord, we've been praying that you would help the church. But how long, Lord, until we see an end gathering? How long before we experience revival? We've been praying for our country, Lord. But it seems that every time we turn around, we're disappointed again at the ballot box or at the decisions that are made by those who have influence over public policy. And perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Brother Mike, I'm in the lowlands. Well, I'll tell you, if your faith has been shaken, if you've had a crisis of faith, if you'll walk the steps that Habakkuk walked, then you'll be on the mountaintop before your experience is done. It begins with a question mark, this book does, but it ends with an exclamation point. Notice in chapter 1, he's wondering and worrying. But by the time you reach chapter 3, he's worshiping and witnessing. In chapter 1, he's sighing. But by the end of the book, he's singing. In chapter 1, we see the prophet's frustration. But in chapter 3, we see his strong faith in God. Or if you please, chapter 1 speaks of his perplexity. 
chapter 3, his peace. Now let's ask a second question. Our first question was, who was Habakkuk? Second question is, why is he so perplexed? Why is Habakkuk in such a quandary? Why is the prophet perplexed? And we learn in the reading that I gave you at the beginning of our sermon, he's perplexed because of God's apparent indifference and inactivity. O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Unanswered prayer. Even cry unto thee out of violence. By the way, the word cry, the second time it's used in verse 2 is different than the first one. The first word cry means to just pray. The second word, though, means to cry aloud. What he's saying is, Lord, I want to talk to you. And then as he continues to pray, he says, Lord, are you listening? He gets more intense. You know anything about that? Lord, how long shall I cry unto thee and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence. Can't you see what's happening? The violence around us in society. Why aren't you doing something? He's asking the question, how long? How long? Interestingly, that's a question that comes up several times in the Psalms. How long? And even in the book of Revelation, the disembodied souls of the martyrs at the throne of God in heaven are saying, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, wilt thou not judge the earth? How long? You know, God's timetable is never exactly like our timetable, is it? God is never in a hurry. But he's always on time. The Lord's timing is perfect. But sometimes we wonder, Lord, aren't you listening? Now, I wonder where this message finds you today. Have you been praying about a situation for a long time? And the answer has not been forthcoming. Maybe you've been asking God, please give me a job. Lord, I need, I need work. My family's just barely scraping by. Lord, please open a door for me. Or maybe you've been praying for a spouse. You know, people who are single sometimes reach a point where they say, Lord, is there anybody out there for me? I know there are many fish in the sea, but all of the best ones seem to be taken. <laughs> is there anybody out there for me? Maybe you've been praying for a child. You ever known a couple that was trying to have children and just couldn't seem to get pregnant and they... Uh, have been praying and praying and praying and trying and trying and going to doctors and they say, Lord, why won't you hear my prayer? Perplexity, perplexity, confusion. Or perhaps you've been praying for revival in the church. I have to tell you, I've been a pastor for over 41 years and I've been praying that the Lord would give us a spiritual awakening, just an outpouring from on high, showers of blessing, not just one here and there, but a, just a massive ingathering into the church, a tremendous spiritual awakening in the larger community. I believe it's possible. God hasn't changed. Now, I don't know that we'll ever see it on a denominational scale, and God's able, or on a national or international scale until the Lord Jesus Christ returns the second time, and then every knee will bow to him. And every tongue will confess. But I do believe it's possible on a local level. And I pray for Bethel Church. Oh Lord, work in the hearts of our people that they too would join me in crying that you would visit us with a fresh anointing. That you would visit this vine, the vineyard of thine own right hand's planting, as Psalm 80 calls it. And revive us again in the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy O lord send revival that's a prayer that i hope you will join me in but you know for 41 years i've not really experienced that i hear tale of people that say back in the old days oh you should have seen it well sorry that's just rubbing salt in the wound i was born too late to see it sorry about that and by the way there were problems back then too Right? There were sinners back then, too. But you know, people didn't have the distractions they do now, right? They said, we used to have to keep the windows of the church open, and people would be listening from the outside. There wasn't enough room to seat them all. Well, that'd be a wonderful problem to have, wouldn't it? But um, I'll tell you, people are going to have to quit being so glued to their iPhones <laughs> and their iPads and their 
computers and their televisions. There's so many distractions today. Anyway, I wonder if you've ever prayed about a situation for a long time and God appears to be indifferent and inactive. Or maybe like Habakkuk, you've been praying that God would intervene to halt the moral and spiritual decline in popular culture. Habakkuk said, Lord, how long are you going to let this continue? He was sensitive to it. It hurt him to see what was happening to the people of God. He's not talking about Egypt or Edom or Babylon or Phoenicia. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about God's covenant people. Lord, why are the people getting away with this? How long? I said the psalmist asked that question several times. Listen to a couple of brief scriptures. Psalm 13, 1, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? <laughs> you say, boy, he's in a dangerous state asking that question. I know, he's on thin ice. But we can understand it, can't we? I mean, it's dangerous. You better be careful not to be irreverent when you start asking this question. God doesn't look kindly on people that take him to task. You know, really, who are we to question the Almighty? But yet, we understand, don't we, when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and it just doesn't seem to change. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? You know, I've gone through dry patches in preaching where I didn't feel like I had any liberty for long periods of time. And I've prayed about it, prayed about it, just didn't seem to get any better. And I've cried out, oh Lord, will you never bless me again? How long, Lord? How long, Lord? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? I'm just, I'm just wrestling. I'm trying to figure it out, taking counsel in my own soul. He's having a conversation with himself. Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Here's one more reference to this how long question. Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? You thought I misread that. It says, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? The repetition is intended for emphasis. How long shall... Truth be on the scaffold, teetering and tottering, and wrong be on the throne. Why do nice guys always finish last? The next verse he asks, how long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. Now as you look at popular culture, do you ever think of that verse in Isaiah 5? I think it's verse 20 where it says, they call good evil and evil good, and they put darkness for light and light for darkness, and sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. In other words, it's a topsy-turvy society. They've turned values upside down. Morals are standing on their head. Everything, he says, has been reversed. They call good evil. As you look at what's happening in our world, don't you see that they're saying that God and the Bible and the church is responsible for all the social ills around us? And that what we want is just to break free from the shackles of divine restrictions. Those laws, the Ten Commandments, they're just keeping us from enjoying life. So that now today they're calling good evil and evil good. And they're putting darkness in the place of light and light in the place of darkness. They're saying sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet. Up is down and down is up. That's the topsy-turvy world in which you and I live today my friend, and does it trouble you? Or have you gotten used to it? That's my question this morning. And you say, well, can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to slide into apathy. I just don't care anymore, just whatever. No, it ought to grieve us. We ought to be sensitive to it. You say, well, I'm not going to slide into apathy. I'm going to slide all the way into atheism and say there is no God or we wouldn't have these problems. I'm asking you to be like Habakkuk. Whatever your waiting game is today, whatever the struggle that you're facing, whether it's a personal problem or a relationship issue or a church problem or a societal ill, this question about the problem of evil and suffering and pain is a perplexing question. It leaves us wondering, why doesn't God do something? That's what Habakkuk is asking. Notice the words that he uses in verses 2 to 4. 
He says, Lord, how long shall I cry unto thee of violence? You know, violence is something all of us can identify with. We see it around us, don't we? We see it in the riots. We see it in the decibels of the voices that are screaming around us in the mob spirit of popular society. We see the violence around us. By the way, did you know violence was one of the reasons God flooded the world back in Genesis 6? Genesis 6.11 says that the earth is filled with violence. And God said, therefore, I will come down and destroy the earth and every living thing within it because of violence. Then Habakkuk says, not only is Judah experiencing violence, but he says, why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? He said, I can't bear to look at it, Lord, but everywhere I turn, I see it. The word iniquity means something that's morally twisted, distorted, and perverse. You ever had a problem with a twisted joint or limb or you ever broken a bone and you thought, boy, I don't think that's supposed to go that direction. <laughs> Our world, my friends, is twisted. It's perverted. It's distorted. And then he uses the word grievance, and that word means misery and suffering. You see, when a society is in this shape, it causes pain. It hurts other people. Sin brings pain, not just to the sinner that commits the sin, but to other people around that person. And then he uses the word spoiling. Spoiling and violence are before me, he says in verse 2. That word speaks of the oppression of the weak and the exploitation of the poor. Little children are misused. The poor are taken advantage of. The elderly are just considered to be a, an economic burden. That's what he means by this word spoiling. And then he uses the word strife at the end of verse 2. There are that raise up strife and contention. That word speaks of controversy and quarrels, fussing and fighting. And then I want you to notice verse 4 says, therefore the law is slacked. That word slacked is interesting. It means paralyzed. The law is paralyzed. Now, does the law really even mean anything anymore? I mean, the law is so frequently thwarted. You know, somebody finds a loophole. They jump through hoops. And it seems that you expect a certain outcome from the judicial system. And so many times it's like this is a travesty of justice. You know, people that are clearly guilty get to walk free on a technicality. And you say, well, that's just part of the game, Brother Goins. I'm telling you, dear friends, if there's an absolute truth that derives from the existence of God, then it ought to grieve us when we see that the law is paralyzed. And he says, judgment doth never go forth. Justice is not served. Now, does this language sound like what's happening in our world today? <laughs> it does to me. And Habakkuk's troubled by it. Are you troubled by it? He's deeply grieved by the injustice and immorality he sees among the people of God. Real quickly, notice God's answer to the prophet's perplexity in verses 5 through 11. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? You're indifferent. That's my perplexity. How can you be inactive? Why are you, as one preacher said, sitting on your hands and not working when I cry, I keep praying, I keep hoping, I keep looking, but all I see is, are the problems, and Lord, I'm asking you to intervene, and why don't you? Habakkuk's perplexity at the problem of evil and pain and suffering. Can you identify with him? God finally answers him in verse 5. Behold ye among the heathen, says God, in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Habakkuk asked, Lord, why aren't you doing something? And God says, I am. And watch what is about to happen. It's going to make your ears burn. <laughs> You're not going to believe it. God's answer is surprising. I am doing something, he says. But I dare say, when God shows Habakkuk what he's doing, that raises even more questions than it solves. For God says... For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. That means the Babylonians. Lord, why aren't you doing something? God says, I am. I'm bringing the enemy in to defeat you. 
I'm going to raise up a foreign country, the Chaldeans. That is not the answer Habakkuk wanted or expected. Lord, I'm wanting you to change people's hearts, but God says, I'm going to do something. But Habakkuk feels like he has jumped from the proverbial frying pan into the fire with this answer. And now he has another question. Lord, why aren't you doing something? Now his question is, Lord, why are you doing that? <laughs> Lord, that's not what I wanted you to do. And by the way, God is sovereign, isn't he? And he knows better what's needed in every given situation than we do. We know what we want, but God's way is always the best way. It'll always bring about the better solution. But the question that Habakkuk's asking is, how can a righteous God use such a godless and ruthless nation as the Babylonians to judge his covenant people Israel? Now notice the rest of this passage in chapter 1 of Habakkuk verses 5 through 11 is the story of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. He says their horses are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen shall spread themselves and come from far. That is, you talk about a mighty army that's spread out and they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to its prey and they'll come for violence. Their faces will drink up the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. That is, you're going to be overwhelmed like a tidal wave in a hurricane. You're going to be swallowed up by the enemy. When they come in, they'll scoff at kings. That is, they won't even respect your leaders. <laughs> and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They will deride every stronghold. That is, the strongest fortification will be like Lincoln Logs or like Legos. You say, this is an impenetrable fortress. They say, it's just like a Lego castle. Their army just, you know, just blew on it and it fell over. When the Babylonians come in, they're going to captivate the people. They are terrible and dreadful. And then he says, when they conquer the nation, then their minds will change. That is, they'll have a change of focus and they will attribute their victory to their gods. They're going to say, our idol gods gave us this victory. They're not even going to give glory to the true God. They'll say, our religion is better than the Jews' religion. Now, I'll tell you, if Habakkuk was perplexed first and foremost over God's indifference, he's now wrestling with the problem of God's apparent injustice. We know, don't we, the Bible teaches God is always just. He's always righteous. He never does anything wrong. But yet, how should Habakkuk reconcile the fact of God's righteousness with his plan to judge his own people now by a nation that is more wicked than they are? It's an enigma to him. He's perplexed by it. How does he resolve these questions? Prayer, verse 12. You'll notice verse 12 is a prayer. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God? And by the way, my friends, I want to say to you, don't forget to pray when you're perplexed. Take your doubts and concerns to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't know the answer. Lord, what's happening? Lord, please help Cast your burden on the Lord, says Psalm 55, 22, and he shall sustain you. Never forget to pray. We sang that this morning. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? Don't forget to pray, my friend. Never stop praying. You say, well, I pray on Sundays. No, pray Monday through Saturday as well. Pray without ceasing. Take some time early in the morning after you do your Bible reading. Or before, to talk to God and say, oh Lord, thank you for who you are. You know what prayer does? It sort of recenters your magnetic north. When you take time to remind yourself who your God is and to talk to him a little bit. You have worries, concerns? Tell him about them. He understands. Talk to him. You say, well, I'm not very good at praying. Can you talk? <laughs> Do you know how to put a sentence together? You say, well, my sentences aren't always grammatically correct. He doesn't care as much about that as I do, that people are grammatically correct. I'm a grammar Nazi. I want sentences to be just right. That's why I get tongue-tied myself trying to get my grammar just right up here. But God, my friends, is looking on your heart. You have problems? Tell him about them. 
Do what Habakkuk did. He's confused. He doesn't know the answer, but he knows one who does. And he takes it to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, he meditates. Verse 12, you'll notice all the attributes of God he uses here. He speaks of God's holiness, his everlasting character. God, art thou not from everlasting? He says, we shall not die. That's God's covenant faithfulness. He knows the people, the nation, will not be utterly consumed because God had pledged himself to sustain them so the whole nation would not die ultimately. So he's thinking of God's eternality, God's holiness, God's covenant faithfulness. He's thinking of God's power. Almighty God, he calls him in verse 12. My beloved, he's meditating. So pray and then preach the gospel to yourself. Do you know what meditation is? It's repeating to yourself the things that you know to be true. It's just ruminating on the truths that you know, just rolling them over and over in your mind. Okay, who is my God? The old Puritans used to say, imitate the most powerful preacher you've ever heard and learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Say, oh God, you're in sovereign control. Nothing is too hard for you. I know that you see all. You hear the prayers of your people. And I'm asking you to hear my prayer today. And Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I'm so thankful to trust one who does know. And I'm so thankful to trust one who, whatever happens here, come what may, your will will ultimately be done. Heaven is my home. By your marvelous grace, thank you for loving me. My beloved, spend a little time worshiping God, meditating on the truth of God, praying to God, and then do what he did in chapter 2. He said, Lord, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon my tower and will watch to see what he will say to me. He watches and waits. He gets up into his watchtower and he says, okay, I've, I don't know, I'm perplexed, but I'm just going to wait for God to answer me. And this morning we're going to leave Habakkuk in his watchtower for the next week. We're just going to let him sit there, okay? And we'll revisit him, Lord willing, next time to discover God's real answer to his dilemma. And you'll see that real answer in chapter 2. But here's a spoiler alert. God will answer Habakkuk's why and how questions with a who answer. Habakkuk's saying, why and how? And God says, I don't owe you an explanation, but I'll show you myself. And God is going to give him a who answer. May I say, God may never answer your why questions, but he will show you himself. And we don't always need an explanation, but we do need a promise, don't we? That God's promise never to leave us nor forsake us. He's promised, my friends, to be with us. That's precisely what we need when we, like the prophet, are perplexed by the problem of evil. We need a new view of God, our sovereign God. So how does faith respond to the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering in this world? Even though it appears that God doesn't know what's happening, he's not actively involved or he doesn't care, how does faith conquer those doubts? By saying with the poet, truth, yes, seems to be forever on the scaffold and wrong forever on the throne, yet God stands somewhere in the shadows, says faith keeping watch above his own. And the ultimate answer is the cross of Calvary. For never has there been an injustice like what happened at Golgotha when Jesus Christ died for crimes he never committed. My friends, all of our problems are solved through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then in heaven, may I say, you and I, We'll forget all about the problems that we had down here. I'm looking forward to heaven. Living below in this old sinful world. That was Brother Andy's selection this morning. Living below in this old sinful world. There's Habakkuk. Lord, it's a sinful world. Hardly a comfort can afford. Striving alone. You ever feel like that? To face temptation sore. Where could I go but to the Lord? A who answer for your why and how questions. In a word, the theme of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And for this reason, you and I may say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 this morning, I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. 
I don't give up hope, even though I don't know all the answers because I know who God is and my eyes are upon him. My beloved God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Maybe.